it's a pleasure again to be with you. It's a Sunday. I was a uh, um, pity we can't do our own person, but again, um, let us heed the call um, to rally together so that we can make this thing happen. Um, again, this beautiful thing called church, uh, the kahal, the ecclesia. Um, so looking forward to, again, sharing with you this morning. Um, it's been a great time in the book of Mark. Um, I hope you've been learning lots. But Lord, I, I'm, but even more that you're actually, um, it's changing the dynamic of your worship, you know, into something better, into, into something that has improved. It's, you know, again, we don't teach for the, the, uh, for the mere fact of passing on information but of really making sure that we are um, enabling you to grow in your faith, to grow in your wisdom. So, again, as we are in that kind of final run, you know, July, is this our final month in the book of Mark? Um, so enjoy it. May it, um, again, set the tone for your summer um, and maybe even many summers to come. And so here we are in our series of um, saving... Saviour, Servant, Son of God. We're in chapter 12 today. I want to read the text to you because I believe that is going to be the most helpful thing is that at least you have the text that has been recorded for us. And then I will try and unpack as much of it as I can. So if you can follow me, I'll be reading in the ESV, but please follow in whatever translation you have. And we will begin. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head, and they treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him, and so with many others. Some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. They went, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him. But feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing the hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. 
And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The Sadducees came to him and who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died and leaving no offspring and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, I have not, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all burnt, whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered, answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the, that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in log robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny and he called his disciples to him and said to them truly I say to you 
This poor widow has put in more than all who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contribute out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are so grateful that your word has been given to us has been preserved for us, dear Lord God, has been, um, as it were, um, given to us, not merely by tradition, but practically to really have it, Lord God, as a text in which we can read in our own language and, and appreciate your Lord Father. But we know, again, beyond this, dear Father, your word speaks spiritually. Lord God, we can Look at a text and, as it were, understand it, Lord. But again, today my prayer is that, Lord, you help us to get to the spirit, to the heart of the matter. That, Lord, your word will get to the heart of us. Will challenge us and, and unpack our issues and unpack our problems. That, Lord, in the light of your scripture, Lord God, we will be transformed. Help me, Lord. I, I, I can do only what I can, Lord. I do not know what you know. I am not Jesus. But Father, I know that you've given us the promise of your spirit. So therefore, I stand in confidence knowing that, Lord God, beyond my words, your spirit can speak into the heart of all those who hear you today. Have your way, we pray. Amen. Do you put God first? We know that what we are supposed to say around the right audience, but what do you believe? is true about yourself. In that sense, you can fool everybody else, but what we believe, we can't fool ourselves about that. As we look at our text today, I want you to take up the challenge of whether you rightly regard the authority of Jesus. Maybe it's no coincidence today that today is the U.S. Independence Day. And we might be mindful that we do not request more freedom than is necessary. Like the psalmist states for our reflection in Psalms 2, 1 to 3, he says this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You know, it's one thing to want to be free from earthly tyranny and another to be free of all legitimate authority. So we look at our text today. I want to kind of go through and, again, hopefully weave together what I believe is, I think, a coherent point and how Jesus is building or how, again, Mark is building the story of what Jesus is doing and how he has come to change things. Change them for the better. So let's start with the parable of the, tenant, the tenants. Now this parable leads on from the last chapter with the sequences of challenges to Jesus' authority. The depiction of Israel as a vineyard is a long-established one, as we can see, way back to Isaiah 5, where, again, you know, he, they're depicted as a vineyard in whom God planted and expected to see crops from. 
Within the few lines of this parable, we see the truth of Israel's history, one of rejection of God's claim to their life and loyalty. This, however, is in contrast to what God had actually expected. I want to, again, take us and remind us of what this, what actually God was expecting as we look back to Deuteronomy 8, verses 11 to 18. And I will read in your hearing. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandment and his rules and his statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground. There was no water. Who brought you out? Who brought you water out of the flinty rock? Who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end? Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is, it, is he, it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. It's worth noting that God's authority is not merely in his person, but also via his message, via his messengers. An assault on God's messenger is an assault on God. This is clearly picked up in the parable by the audacity of the tenants who see no issue with taking the life of the son because it's already been built up. They've already taken the life of his messengers. The son is now a small step to take in order to, as it were, gain what they believe they th what they think they can gain which is mastery of all that God has given them. The craving for a complete autonomy has driven the tenants to madness and to put them in line for wrath. You know, it was worth noting as well that they, the parable calls them tenants. They have no right they have every right to live off the land, as it were, and, and, and take the good produce, as we saw back in Deuteronomy. Yeah, multiply. Have, you know, great crops. Enjoy the goodness of the land. But they had no right to buy. There's no mortgage. There's no squatter's rights. Forever they are reliant on God as their landlord. And this is always going to be true. I believe that this parable also anticipates the last section of this chapter and chapter 13, where the destruction of the temple is foretold. Jesus himself will become the foundation of a new temple that will restore the authority of the Father. But I will speak a bit more on this later. 
Next we have, in verses 13 to 17, the paying taxes to Caesar. The text explains that this is a trap. So we need not consider if there is a genuine motive in this question. And note how he has been baited as well. You know, the, the whole idea of, you know, eat, you know, speak as you really want to speak because, you know, we really want you to be confident and be bold and, you know, you have no regard for anybody. Look at how he's been bigged up to put himself into the trap. But Jesus avoids the yes or the no to the question that has been designed to either create a wedge between him and the people or him and the Roman government. But note that Jesus actually switches a question designed to trap him into a genuine theological statement. It must be noted that it is actually possible to render to Caesar what belongs to God and to God what belongs to Caesar. We will understand more of this as we unpack more of the text. The next section is the Sadducees ask about the resurrection. So this is in verses 18 to 27. The Sadducees can be described as, a, as representing a kind of liberal wing of the Jewish religious elite. The growing trend in Jewish tradition of a resurrection, so there was a tradition that was now growing um, as you go through the canon of scripture, that the resurrection was becoming more and more pronounced in the writings of the prophets. But these, these Sadducees did not accept any such tradition of there being a resurrection. We must also imagine them sniggering to themselves as they posed this question to Jesus. There is a snideness about it. There is this whole idea that this question has been formulated and no doubt would have been a much of a debate as we look obviously to the book of Acts. We see how these kinds of questions would have triggered off numerous fights between them and, for example, the Pharisees. And Paul uses that to his great advantage when he sees the mixed multitude of people that come to denounce him before the Romans. So they're laughing as they're saying this to him, but no doubt holding a straight face. The Sadducees, you see, only accepted the Torah, which is known as the Pentateuch, the first five books. So Genesis right up to um, Deuteronomy. So this was for them the word of God. This was the only thing you can really count on. This was God's truth. We can't rely on anything else. But there is a warning for us here because when your whole theology rests upon one section of a book, you know, that desire for proof texting to kind of go to those places that make us feel comfortable and avoid the ones that make us feel uncomfortable, we are going to be unbalanced just like these Sadducees were. We must look, however, to verse 24 
to see how Jesus puts his finger on their own deception. Is this not the reason you are wrong, he states? Because you know neither the scriptures. Again, the full counsel of scriptures gives the proper context for interpretation. In other words, as we read the story through, as we do biblical theology, we find that a theme develops. And something that looks very shadowy at the beginning becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. And we see this, obviously, as we move through the books of the Bible, right through to Jesus in the New Testament. For you know neither the scriptures, and then he says, nor the power of God. Can I state, a diminished view of God is always going to lead to a weak theology. If God is not the biggest thing in what you obviously understand about the Bible, then you're going to get it wrong. And I'll be as bold as that and simple as that. Let me read a section to you from 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, which I think hopefully helps us understand this point. So Paul writes this and says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. There's that denial of power again, isn't there? Denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households, like the Sadducees obviously would have, and capture weak women, burdened with sin and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. What Paul warns us of is a cold, rationalistic, self-centered religion replacing a hot, dynamic faith based on our reasonable worship of God at the center. Now tell me we don't look around the world today and even more locally and see that there is a trend towards religion being about me about who I am it's become self-centered but in many ways it has always been self-centered what I guess Paul is putting his finger on is that at least in his day people were able to kind of cover it up again he was living in a collectivistic style 
type of people where you live for the community and the community live to kind of serve one another. Now we, are, we don't have to kind of cover up. Our desire to be selfish, to some extent, the more selfish our religion looks, the more pleased people are that you are being you. And so, in that sense, it seems godly now that we are actually more inwardly looking. And this is why I, I, I'm, I mock everything you see on, especially Saturday evening TV. Look into yourself. Do that. You know, you know be the authentic you. It's just, we live in a time where you don't need to pretend anymore. That godliness is actually looking into yourself. We must be wary of any cause that can unite both liberal and legalistic fringes. I mean, you know, again, I just quoted from, from you know, Paul in Acts, obviously, as he, he sees a mixed group of Sadducees and Pharisees there, and obviously, as numerous, as numerous times, Jesus himself was approached by Sadducees and Pharisees. And so anything that can unite two fringes that ultimately have nothing much in common ought to make you go, there's something suspect here. You know, it's often said amongst theologians that what liberal and legalistic theology have in common is that they both make the same error. It's not like two different problems. It's the same problem. What both tend to do is scale down the power of God in favor of scaling up the power and the autonomy of mankind. Such unbalanced perspectives are to be expected when you put our anthropology, that is the study of man, who is man, who, what are we, what, what's our basic components, you know, how do we function, what's our, what's our needs, you know, who fundamentally are we? That's anthropology. Before our theology, which is again the study of God. If we do this in this order, then whatever is left over from our anthropology will be used to make a second-rate theology. This, I believe, is the weakness of most post-Enlightenment theology. The reason this is wrong is because in Genesis 1, there is a God before there is a creation. If we try to understand God through creation, i.e. as I look to the stars and the, 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 the place around me, as opposed to allow God to speak and reveal himself to me, we will make fundamental mistakes. And we will be no better than the pagans. What did the pagans do? They looked at nature and they made nature into God. 
When it thundered, that was God. When the sun shone, that was God. They took their nature before their theology. They were naturalists, first and foremost, and therefore naturalism became their God. We make the same mistake because now we are entrenched in trying to figure out who God is by looking at ourselves. And no wonder, because now we have made ourselves God, just as the naturalists have made nature God, so we also make ourselves God. We need the revelation of God. We need to understand who he is in order for us to understand who we are. We take up the change. We take up what's left over. Because if this is who God is, then now I have a real role of being, as it were, created and responded to being a created being. And again, this all feeds back into that theme in our chapter today of authority. I also want us to understand that a faith without the resurrection is pointless. We saw this as we were studying, you know, last year through 1 Corinthians. And in particular, in chapter 15, Paul picks up this point. If there is no resurrection in your, for, in your theology, if Jesus Christ was not resurrected, if there is no expectation that we would be resurrected, he said, there's no point. He says it plain, plain blankly, there is no point. Christianity serves nothing for you because it cannot speak into a, resurrection, a resurrectionist dogma. Well, I believe all these kind of things about God, but yeah, the resurrection, come on. No point. The more and more I hear this, especially it's kind of interesting, isn't it? As, uh, some of these, you know, big thinkers and stars always say, and that's always one of those things that seem to drop off. You know, I, you know, I can't quite believe in a resurrection. Again, to look trendy, to look cool, but again, it's pointless. Why bother? We now come to the great commandment, verses 28 to 34. I believe that the answer that Jesus gives to this man also helps us with the answer to what do we owe God versus what do we owe Caesar. Today I would say that it's generally true that the things that get us excited and passionate do not really happen within the realm of Christianity. It can be easier to see something loved with all our heart, soul, mind and strength at a sports event, a party, or even a political rally. And by contrast, we can render to God a very mechanical service, a bum on a seat, 
a hand that gives an offering, a mouth that opens for conversation and coffee at the end of a service. There is a challenge here if this is you. To see if you can reverse the polarity of your sacred and secular life. I must, as it were, put a pin in that and say that I do not believe that there is such a thing as a sacred and secular life for those who are obviously believers. But what I mean is that those areas of your life in which you believe God is not most evident or seems to have little role in, And to be able to start to see those areas of your life as places in which God also wants to be worshipped. Within our jobs, within our commute. That all becomes sacred before you and God. Even when we drive. I don't believe that, you know, a believer has anything other than a sacred life, as I just stated. But what I would like to emphasize is how our worship of God drives every other part of our lives, as opposed to our spiritual life being driven along by something else that has our heart, thus making our spiritual life a subsidiary of that. You know, I make the point, and I think it's true, and I remember way back when I first started to hear sermons on this basis of, you know, you can get excited, everybody else, but you can't get excited in church. And I used to think it was irritating. But you know what? It's actually true. It doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't a part of your worship in which isn't quiet and meditative. That is legitimate and that is true. But again, it's all about what excites you, isn't it? You know, it's like, you know, going to a Bible study. And not just what happens afterwards, but again, I, I reference the road to Emmaus and, and the disciples' comments afterwards. He says, didn't our hearts burn within us? I am fortunate I can say that the things of God truly excite me. I come away feeling that vibrancy of, of like, wow, that was great. Wasn't God present? If Christianity, if your Christian lived experience, those things in which God is intimately, ultimately the focal point, is not exciting you, then I pray that you will start rendering to God that part of your life, that dynamic aspect of who you are as a person. I believe that we also need to avoid the coupling of some other objective alongside our commitment to Jesus as well. Which drives our passions, but is not wholly centered on Jesus. You know, there is that thing of like Jesus and. Which again is that very important thing that we need to, again, to understand that, well, ultimately, well, Jesus also finds this important. Jesus and my particular style of dogma. Jesus and my particular view of justice. Jesus as my particular need to bring 
whatever it is to the world that I believe the world really needs. And so often it's things that legitimately have a claim to our lives, but realistically, when you, you put them together because that's what really actually drives your passion. And not Jesus. Jesus has just been brought along for the ride and you're making it look like this is my Christianity outworked. But it has nothing to do with Jesus and everything to do with you. Now when Jesus is truly in control of those things, we will go and do great things. No doubt. But you have, to de- you have to figure out whether it's Jesus leading you in these things or whether you're, these things are leading Jesus. This is just along for the ride. Do we render to God all our being? That's the great commandment. Tell us what we should. Next section, whose son is Christ? Verses 35 to 37. It is possible that Jesus is um, also recasting this epitaph of the son of David here to broaden the vision of the hearers. Again, Jesus had this constant struggle with disciples to get them to see the vision in its grandest scheme, you know, it wasn't like Jesus was trying to scale, you know, to, to kind of deceive his disciples. He was always trying to give them a bigger vision of what was happening. I, so I wonder about this section, about whether he wants to broaden the vision of his hearers here, who are looking for a purely warrior king in the fashion of David. But Jesus is more than that. In fact, it is he that sets the precedent for being the Lord's anointed, and not David even though he comes after him. So there's that point where he just says to him, well, if, if David calls me Lord, then really I am the benchmark for what the Lord's anointed is. Not David. David, you really need to kind of, kind of forget about the whole idea that David sets the trend of what the Messiah, the anointed, is. And that I am the archetypal anointed. I am the genuine anointed. And not David. And so that sense he's trying to get them, don't, don't be thinking that I have to come and somehow fill David's shoes. In fact, what you find is that David could not fill my shoes. I believe that there may also be a sense of removing also a nationalistic view of the Jewish Messiah whose interests are focused on Israel alone. So this whole idea of expanding also means that there needs to be room in this kingdom to go beyond David and grow beyond Israel. So in that sense, that limited view of of a Messiah coming back to reclaim David's kingdom will mean that, well, this is obviously focused on Israel alone and not obviously the whole world. Jesus is expanding their view in, I guess, this very short section. 
And again, it becomes a question of authority as well, isn't it? Again, that's that theme of authority going throughout all of this particular part of the scripture. So what do we have here in verse 38 to 34? The book, you know, I've, I've kind of, those last two sections, I kind of merged together because I believe they're the same, talking about the same, same issue, you know, beware of the scribes, this, the, the whole issue of what the scribes do and the widow's offering. This section, I believe, leads into Jesus' proclamation against the temple and its destruction, which is coming in the next chapter. Like the Gospel of Luke, Jesus takes his time to highlight how the temple system and the elites that run them have turned the temple into a den of thieves. I'd like to remind you about where this term comes from and about what a Jewish mind would have said as soon as they heard that den of thieves, they would have fought Jeremiah 7. Let me read a part of it again for you because, again, the reading of Scripture is important. It says, will you still murder? And this is obviously Jeremiah at the temple proclaiming these things to those that are walking in. And as he's going and he's saying these things to them, warning them about what's coming. It says, will you still murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go, up, go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called my, by my name, and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers? In your eyes, behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So as soon as that, Jesus says, had this become a den of robbers? Jeremiah 7. And what was that highlighting? The coming of Babylon, the destruction of Jerusalem. The end of the temple system, at least temporarily at that time. He entered the temple. This is, again, Luke 19, 45 to 46. Again, it parallels with what we also saw in chapter 12 in, Ma in, in, in Mark. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. He's highlighting the same issue in Jeremiah's day for his day. The system has become so corrupt that I have to bring it to an end. I think the widow now becomes a, a picture of that corruption and who it exploits. But here is a picture who has lost everything and as we look at what has happened with the scribes is that her house has been devoured and so there's almost like a, a figurative kind of archetypal widow being depicted here. Her house has been taken through these religious elites. And here she is, left with the last few coins in her pocket, and here she is bringing those last coins and going to put it into those same pockets that have also taken away her house. The temptation is to see this as a picture of a sacrificial giving that pleases God. Out 
give the elites. Nothing was more disturbing. I get that. Again, this is like a side note. But again, it's something I witnessed. And I remember, you know, sitting in, you know, a number of years ago, um, standing in queue at the Santander and, and um, watching a, a, an elderly, I should say, Caribbean woman go and create a cashier's check for one of these ministries I would rather she had not had given to. I won't. Um, say the name because she there was there trying to make sure that you know because you know with the cashier's check you've got to get the name correct right and so she was there making it correct so not, I was trying to listen she was there trying to make sure they got the right name on the check and obviously it was for thousands I mean she didn't look like she was well to do we can sit there and think oh yeah it's great sacrificial giving no God does not require that we give the last that we have. But it also kind of lives at this whole idea of when you're in that culture of giving, that this is what it led to. The ostentatious giving, when you're trapped in that, everyone's trying to compete. I believe that if we do go down that line of this is sacrificial giving and, and, and Jesus is kind of pointing out, you know, it's the percentage that really matters, then we are dispensing with the other details that set the tone for Jesus' point. The phrase den of robbers, as I said, was in, back in Mark, sorry, eleven seventeen, not 12, I believe should cast our mind back again, as I said, to Jeremiah 7, where the prophet is being witnessed to the end of a, is, is witness, bringing witness to an end of a corrupt system, as noted in the opening parable of this chapter. Jesus is calling time on corrupt management of his father's domain. And again, we've come full circle, haven't we? This parable of the tenants, these people who are in charge and gatekeepers to God's domain, God is calling time on them. So looking back to the clearing of the temple that we saw last week in chapter 12, the exploitation of the poor and the denial of entry to the Gentiles, to the temple, for want of a marketplace, has meant that the temple system was more of a hindrance to worship than a blessing to it. You might say that the, the destruction of the temple would spear future widows being fleeced by this corrupt system and also open the way for the Gentiles to be included in the fellowship of God's kingdom. So what do we do with this by our application? Are we like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who have hollowed out their faith by putting themselves at the center? You know, it can take some work to contextualize an ancient text for a contemporary audience. There is, however, 
nothing new under the sun. And we do not escape the drama of the human condition simply because we assume to be in a modern and more enlightened age. Their problems are our problems. Is your tentative commitment to living out for Jesus fueled by a skepticism that sees the danger of believing in a God that is all-powerful, to whom we owe everything, comes at the cost of us losing a narrative that keeps us in control? I do not want you to think that human agency is being undermined when I state that God is in control. I do believe, as Jesus does, that what I do with my heart, mind, soul, and strength mean something. As we saw back in chapter 9, with the man declaring that I believe but help my unbelief, we must come to God with a knowledge and humility that left to myself, I will not be able to accomplish my true desires or potential. <laughs> the category of creator and created should be respected for this reason. When I go to the source of all creation, when I go to God with my hands as a beggar, I do not lose agency. I regain it. I want to be able to do the things that I need to do. I need to live as I ought to live. And that's the reason why I go like a beggar to the Son of God and say, help my unbelief. Make the difference. I will give you my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength, but make, make the difference because all those things will fail. I'm trying to regain agency when I go to God. I want to be helpless like the Roman 7 believer, right? If you are more, and I say this tongue-in-cheek, if, if you are at the more liberal end of the Christian spectrum, you're in danger of denying the authority of God's word. In the name of progress. And also denying his power. You know, this idea that we must look to ourselves uh, and not to some supernatural source for help. And, and it all comes in the disguise of a practical Christianity. I want to be relevant. I want to somehow kind of fit into the culture and I want to look practical. If you're there, you need to not deny the power of God. You need help. For those of us on the more conservative, legalistic end of the Christian spectrum, again I say tongue-in-cheek, you are likewise in danger. In denying the authority of God's word in favor of my own dogma. And also denying his power. I just need to try harder. I will get it. I will have mastery. I'm not going as beggar in hand and saying, Lord, help my unbelief. Do not forget the warning of Deuteronomy 8, 17. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power 
and might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Do you identify with the tenants of the vineyard who no longer acknowledge God's claim to their life? Are you an unbeliever otherwise? Or even a believer who is, I guess, in the trimmings of believers but really are an outsider? The sheriff is coming. The bailiff is coming, you might even say. Today, if you hear the bailiff at the door, don't worry. Let him in. It's the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, you are so gracious, so good to us. Lord Father, everything we've heard today about the authority of Jesus, his rightful um, his right to come and reclaim everything back to himself, to reclaim even the very temple system and say, Lord, I will now put myself at the center of all that happens as far as transactions between men and God. Lord, you have the right to do so. You have a right to our lives, Lord God. You are the creator. We are the created, Lord. When we understand who you are, then we understand who we are. We have no right, dear Lord Father, to this earth other than the rights you give. Lord, I pray that we would do so, Lord God, humbly. I pray, Lord God, that we won't lose that perspective of what it means to live for you. That, again, that we won't render, as it were, to something other than you, to a Caesar, Lord God, those things which ultimately belong to me. My heart, my soul, my mind, my strength. Everything, Lord. Lord, we also casually give this over to other things, Lord God. Things that, you know, they're, they're not wrong, Lord, but again, they're not you. And we can find that, Lord God, that, you know, our Christian walk is drudgery in comparison to the things that really get us excited, Lord. Lord, I wonder how many people are sitting at home, Lord, or at who are excited even now, Lord God, to get back into fellowship and, and all the rest of it, Lord God. Maybe not as many as we would hope. You know, many people have probably been sitting there thinking, you know, uh, how I need my barber, how I need my, my nail technician, or how I need those restaurants and whatever they Lord God. How many people have desired, like the psalmist desired, oh, to go to the house of the Lord? And dwell in his presence. That's what I desire. Lord, help redirect our hearts. Back to you. Our passion is waning, Lord. Please help us. Help our unbelief. Lord, we're so thankful that you're in control, Lord. Because again, we can fully trust in you that, Lord, you will make all things right. And look at how you are making things right by coming in and saying, Lord, I'm going to be the heart of worship. I'm going to be the temple now that my people now dwell in me. Not merely in a, in, in, in a, in a, in a grand audacious building on the top of a mountain, dear Lord God, which no doubt served your purpose in its time. But Lord, now you say, come into me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and come, drop your burdens. I'm not going to fleece you. I'm not going to take everything you have from you. I have everything. Lord, you are so good. And we're so thankful that we can worship in you and, and actually be the temple with you. 
Lord, thank you that your authority helps us and not hinders us. Bless you. In Jesus' name. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.